Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Let's get the show going, boys. Here we are. All right, what episode is this? I don't even know. It's the one after the last one we did. Excellent. And the one preceding the next one. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It's not all lineal, Osh. Like people dip in and out of podcasts, yeah. whatever comes in their feed, whatever gets recommended to them by some sort of algorithm in Silicon Valley. People don't care about numbers or details or they don't even know what the name of the podcast is. They're just like, oh, that's something that's in front of my face right now. I'll scroll down on it. Maybe I'll click on it. And this is what you've clicked on. This is what you have scrolled and clicked on and now it is in your face and in your ear. So welcome, welcome to episode <laughs> uh, the whatever's in your feed like right now. I mean that's how people watch Netflix these days. It's like you know, I watched a, a friend of mine scroll through Netflix yeah. for longer than he watched of the actual show that he yeah. discovered. Oh yeah, maybe that is the show just scrolling. I remember in the states when I lived in America, there was the TV Guide channel, which just Scrolled a TV guide. Have you ever been so lonely or slash high or slash drunk that you've discovered on Netflix the Burning Log show? It's just a burning log. Stop. I reckon you could bring it up now. I'll be back in two hours. (laughs) It is two to four hours of a burning log. That's it. How are you feeling today, James? We had a big day. We went and we went to the mothership. Usher, we went and- wait a minute. Yeah, what? The burning log rates higher than ninety percent of the shows that I've been on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outrated by a burning log. I think most okay. of us are really. I think Sorry. like I work on TV shows that are outrated by a nine year old kid unboxing things. <laughs> oh God, you can't compete with him. Nah, it makes eighty million dollars I mean, a year. It's like that guy's a powerhouse. Yeah. I mean, but how? I mean, just the way he unboxes, yeah. though. Yeah, it's a joy of discovery every day on on YouTube. Today was a good day, James. We went to the mothership. We went to to Channel Ten, and we talked about this show, and we were on telly together, which doesn't happen. Happens every now and again. The last time that was when you worked on that Survivor show. I think that was the last time we did it. Yeah, but prior to that, I don't think we'd been on television together for oh, a good decade. Um, but now here we are together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but nobody's filming. We should film this. I am. Oh, are you really filming this? Yeah, yeah. No, this is terrible. I haven't done my. You know, I'm I'm barely wearing pants. <laughs> you haven't done your beauty routine. Welcome to the show. 
It's, of course, Idle Australians. It's all about the unsung heroes and untold stories of this wide brown land. We've been going deep over the last few weeks. Yeah. And this episode is no different because we're talking to someone who I think changed the world. Hold on there, Jimmy. Let me just let me let me walk you through. Let me walk you towards that. How are you, Jimmy? How are you and I talking to each other today? Mm. Well, are we going to break the illusion? We're going I mean, to pull people back the like curtain. the idea that we're sitting next to each other. That we we're, we're, yeah. we're at your place, yeah. chilling how, in your pad. How are we? How am I also in your home? And how are you in my home? Are you talking about the technology? Yeah. Like you're on the internet. I'm on the yeah. internet. We're and connected ha- via the internet. We're on Zoom. If yeah. If people want to know, we're on Zoom. We're not yeah. in the same room. Often we are. Yeah, often not we are. Not tonight, though. And my, so laptop not is, my laptop is not plugged into the modem. How is your laptop plugged into the modem? No. How no, is- It's not. How's the signal getting from your laptop to the modem? Um, I'm on my, on my network. I mean, I'm your in wifi- my Wi-Fi network. A, a quick question, very important question. What's the name of your Wi-Fi network? Uh, sex Dungeon. No, wait, that's my neighbour. <laughs> uh, Ours is pretty, tw- it's husband and Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, that's good. Make Wi-Fi great again. That's great. That's a great network name. Do you remember what it was like before Wi-Fi? I'm trying to think if that was ever a thing for me. I remember we used to have an old computer and I probably ran an Ethernet cable into the back of it and then another cable into yeah. something else. But no, I, yeah, a lot of I think a lot of Ethernet cables pumped into one another. I remember going like I had a, a long lead from Tandy Electronics that I would because the only internet computer I knew was the one at work, at, ra- at the radio station I worked at, and I would plug it in the newsroom and then run the cable under the two doors and into the studio because I did the overnight shift and I would put the computer in the – I'd have to drag this computer into the studio so I could have access to the internet while I was on the radio with this 42-metre-long cable. But there was a time before Wi-Fi, and to get to a life before Wi-Fi – if you can imagine life without Wi-Fi, it's bananas, Right. Yeah. Like how many times today did you use it? Uh, I open up my laptop. I just, it finds it automatically. I'm yeah. online. I'm in the, I'm on the internet. Yeah. There's wherever in, I am. There's things in mm. my house that are connected to Wi-Fi. We had a baby crib that was connected to Wi-Fi for goodness sakes. The crib's connected to Wi-Fi? Yeah. We could control how much it rocked Wolfie to sleep off our phones. That is amazing. It was. It's kind of lazy. Um, But I get it. You're tired. You're exhausted. To get to a life before Wi-Fi, Jimmy, we actually, we have to go back in time, but actually quite a way back longer than most people think. We have to go back over 100 years to 1916. Now, this is when the Australian government formed the Council of Science and Industry, which the very first thing they did uh, with a grant of £250 from Queensland and New South Wales, they set to work on trying to eradicate prickly pear, which was a mm. weed that was decimating millions of acres of agricultural land in That's... eastern Australia. State of origin time, Queensland, New South Wales, mortal enemies. But when it comes to prickly pear, united. Oh, yeah. It's a common enemy. <laughs> they did it with a bit of a help from a little moth that was brought in from South America. And the moth that ate the prickly pear has the best Latin name 
ever, I think. But it does make me think, like, you know, when you're kind of naming insects, they must just have been taking the piss by this point. What are we going to call the, the moth that eats the prickly pear? And give it a Latin-sounding name. What do you reckon, Colin? I know. Cactoblastus cactorum, because it fucking blasts the cactus. Blasts the cactus. Nice one, Colin. There you go. And that was the first thing that, uh, who's this mob again? The, the, uh, the, the, the Council of Science and Industry, but they kind of developed up and then, then they helped out the uh, primary industries and the military a fair bit across World War II. They helped them build radar. But in 1949, they did two important things. One, they stopped working for the military. And two, they added an RO to their name and they became the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, the CSIRO. And it was around 1949, Jimmy, that our hero was born, Dr. John O'Sullivan, who, despite being a stellar hockey player at Sydney University, he graduated from there with a PhD in electrical engineering. Small and portable. This is the future of business communications. And as portable computers become more widespread as business tools, there is an increasing need for wireless connectivity. He's rubbing shoulders with giants there at Sydney Uni. Some of the alumni include seven Australian Prime Ministers, four opposition leaders, 24 High Court Justices, and one, James, one Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren went to Sydney Uni? He holds a master's degree in chemical engineering from Sydney University. There's a point where you think, I can't love Dolph anymore. <laughs> like, my Dolph love is maxed out. And then you hear shit like that. And the universal soldier himself. I mean, that is probably peak Dolph Lundgren. Universal Soldier. Um, <sighs> I mean, people enjoyed He-Man. It's pretty good. What about uh, Ivan Drago? He was Ivan Drago, right? Well, he was, and it's it's kind of interesting because it all started while he was here in Sydney. He became Grace Jones's bodyguard when she spotted him on the door of a nightclub while she was here in Sydney. Because he was the 1981 European karate champion and obviously quite tall, hot and smart, they started rooting pretty instantly. She convinced him to move to New York got him a job in the James Bond movie, A View to a Kill, and then boom, Rocky IV. Even though, James, even though it wasn't the theme song for Rocky IV, in March 2010, at the finale of Melodi Festivalen, which is a little like the the group qualifier for Eurovision, <laughs> you know, before they go to the main game, mm-hmm. Dolph Lundgren, TV host Christine Meltzer, and Mans Zelmro came out in the grand final. It's kind of like Australian Idol, but for, you know, they came out. And they sang Eye of the Tiger. Go, Dolph. That's Christine. She's another TV host. Guess which one won Swedish Idol? Probably old mate here. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but anyway, that was a beautiful moment of Dolph Lundgren there that I thought you'd enjoy. But back to our hero, John Sullivan. Not a great singer, but as far as I know, excellent with radio telescopes. He developed uh, some world-leading CSIRO radio telescopes, you know, designed to look at the stars and look at other planets and exoplanets around Australia. But then in 1974, John moved to the Netherlands, to the De Vingelor, Radio Observatory. Now, I'm just wondering, a young engineer from Sydney, 
What does he make of the Netherlands in 1974? Because let's not forget, Jim, what was special about the Netherlands in 1974? Uh, tulips. It was a very, very important sporting event that happened in 1974, and the Netherlands were transformative at that sporting uh, event. Did they win the World Cup? They created the concept of total football, Jimmy. Ah, Johan Cruyff. That's exactly right. Yes, of course. They went all the way. They hadn't qualified in nearly 40 years for the World Cup and they played total football. What's total football? I remember you tried to explain it to me once. Did I? Oh, well, that yeah. would have bored you shitless. <laughs> oh, I was really interested. I mean, I think prior to that stage, you had very defined positions in football. You know, if you're a striker, you're a striker. If you're a centre-back, you just hung at the back and you made sure that no goals were scored, you know. But Cruyff was like, no, we're all footballers. We can all dribble. We can all pass. You know, the idea of set, defined roles that we stick to rigidly, let's throw that out the window, you know. You're right and you're left back. They can become wing backs. They can force their way up so that they can have an extra man overlapping and sending the crosses in. And, you know, if you want to push forward as a centre midfield, then someone else will drop back for you. Playing as a complete team, not bound by these imaginary positions that are titles and they're a guide for where you should be on the field. But, you know, it's not netball. You've got to stay in this zone. So, yeah, Cruyff sort of pioneered that way of thinking. Exactly. And that's what total football was. And let's just say inspired by the Dutch and their total football. In 1977, he co-authored a paper and apparently this paper directly led to the creation of Wi-Fi. This human being, this man, this legend who created a product, a thing that you, that me, everyone listening to this, they probably downloaded this podcast over Wi-Fi, is using today... James, I'm very happy to say we have him. Oh, boy. We have the man, the myth, the legend, the winner of the 2009 Prime Minister's Prize for Science, the European Inventor of the Year 2012, the man who helped a team of scientists break on through to the other side of 100 megabits a second Wi-Fi, James Matheson. Welcome to Wide Australians, Dr. John O'Sullivan. He really, really pumped up your tyres there, John, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know, Jimmy. Over three billion devices on the planet use something that he had a part of, of working on. It's pretty decent to give him a bit of bit of warm air. Oh, yeah. It's all right. It's all right, I guess, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's not the hill's hoist, is it? But, <laughs> it, you know, it's not the polymer banknote, but it's it's good. It's good. <laughs> Let's be honest, John. I can do the quiet achieve a bit if you like. <laughs> Amazing to have you on the show, John. Um, it is a show about sort of untold stories and I think, you know, for most of us, Wi-Fi is something that we use every single day without giving it uh, a second thought. But there was a time when it didn't exist and, you know, the only way to connect to your network or get online or connect to a device was, was plugging in a cable. Isn't that right? Well, it was even worse than plugging in a cable actually back in the time. Uh, you actually had this thick cable running around and if you want to put a new position in it, you had to actually drill a hole through the side of the cable and put a probe in and mount a, a box that was about 10 centimetres long over the cable. It was quite a hassle. And uh, 
come to think of it, the uh, portable computers weren't all that flash either. <laughs> Speaking of drills, John, you, we, we actually invented the electric drill. Oh, really? I yeah, did. not obviously Osh and I, but, yeah, it was, that is a, an Australian invention, I don't the electric drill. Build a lot of houses, but has it brought as much joy to as many people as Wi-Fi, James? I don't know. No, yeah, probably not. And so uh, w- why was that a problem? I mean, obviously technology often it's about trying to innovate and create solutions for things that, you know, obviously can be improved, but why was that a problem? Why did it become something that we needed to try and find a solution for? Because I imagine because it was how everything operated, why, why did we think that there was a way forward there? I, I guess we, we came to it, uh, well, I'm about to say slowly, but it actually happened over a relatively short time. And we were looking at things, we were in a research environment, so we were using things like these uh, wired networks and through those wired networks you could access data, data banks, and uh, you could see things like email. We also were experimenting with the use of portable computers or lockable computers Uh, So you could start to see where things might be going. Um, But at the time, there were wireless networks, but they were pretty slow. So we started to think, uh, what if you could actually wirelessly connect at the same speed as the best wired networks, uh, which were actually fibre optic at the time, but, you know, they were 100 megabits per second, And as you started to think about it, and we had various people in CSIRO and our collaborators that were thinking about these problems, and we started to think, well, you know, once you got up to, uh, um, you know, towards 100 megabits per second, you could ship video, you could imagine, you know, a technician working in the inside of an aircraft or something being able to bring up the the manual of what they should be doing on this part, all sorts of things. We decided to to go for the doctor, as it were, <laughs> Try, you know, set ourselves a challenge that was as fast as the best wired network. From what I understand, when you're dealing with a radio signal like this, Echoes are a real problem, but I had no idea, like in this studio, I'm talking into a microphone, I've got these sound buffers on the wall so my voice doesn't bounce around. Do echoes cause a problem when you're dealing with this kind of signal? Absolutely, and and that's where we came at the problem. As soon as you start to think about 100 megabits, if you send them one after another, the bits are only three metres apart. Uh, so if they bounce off the wall behind you and come back, they're going to you know, the last, the echo of the last bit or the last 20 bits or so or 100 bits is just going to confuse the heck out of you. So, you know, we pretty quickly realised we had to do something about the echoes and it was partly because of the way we went about trying to understand what, what the echoes would do and we were interested. We were quite used to thinking both in the time and also in the frequency or, or, or pitch or tones, whatever. And, uh, you know, as we thought more about the problem, uh, gradually ways of uh, solving it became possible. 
Can you like paint a picture for me? Like it's a you and a team of other scientists and engineers and have you got a lab? Do you sit down at a lunch table? Are you spitballing ideas? You got a chalkboard up there? Like how are you sharing ideas and picking each other's brains? Are you heading the pub for a few pints? What are you doing? Yeah, I, I didn't find the pub work too well for me. <laughs> uh, I couldn't really concentrate. But we did. We, we were part of a division of CSIRO that had a proud history. And, you know, it had number five computer in the world. It had research on the first transistors going on. Uh, it was called radio physics, which was code in during World War Two for radar. The, the dish, at the dish at Parks uh, and the, the dishes at Narrabri were you know, developed by uh, this, this group in uh, CSIRO. So it had lots of smart people. And so we were thinking also we need to bring a lot of these smart people from different areas together and work on one problem that has some real commercial opportunities and by bringing people with different skills together, you know, we can attack a problem that you couldn't do in the solitary scientist mode. How did you guys kind of navigate a bottleneck? What was the problem-solving strategies that you used? Fairly quickly, we started to, oh, wait a minute, what if we treat the problem quite differently? What if we not try and send the bits one after another, but we give each bit a different tone and we start to think down these paths and then each time you sort of solve a problem, you, you sort of expose the next problem. And, yeah, there were different people thinking about it and yeah, it was an interesting team effort. You know, mathematician, physicist, a couple of radio and system engineers, software engineer. And uh, you know various other people and collaborators. Is it you mentioned inspiration about trying to solve problems? Is it true that Dr. Stephen Hawking provided inspiration for what we now know as Wi-Fi? So Stephen Hawking, one of the interesting things about astronomy was you're encouraged to reach for the stars, as it were. You know, we had these astronomers, and I was sort of an astronomer, but more more the instrumentalist. But a couple of the astronomers came to me in the Netherlands and said, look, uh, Stephen Hawking and Martin Rees, the, the, uh, the astronomer royal, Lord Rees of Ludlow, I believe he was in the UK, had had this idea that black holes, as they get smaller and smaller, black holes for a start aren't entirely black. As they get smaller and smaller, they get hotter and finally they get so small and so hot that they might go up with a something like a nuclear explosion. They were suggesting that maybe that nuclear-like expl explosion would result in a radio pulse, just the same as the electromagnetic pulse that people were terrified about with nuclear bombs. And maybe, just maybe, you could see these uh, pulses uh, from little mini black holes going bang all around us, uh, left over from the Big Bang. and So we set out trying to measure these pulses. Didn't find anything, but it aroused a lot of interest and we came back some years later with much more comprehensive equipment able to detect pulses smeared out by using the different frequency tones in the signal. 
as part of that, I came away thinking there has to be a better way. Can we do one of the operations here? Can we do it digitally rather than with a big uh, optical light table full of lasers and other stuff? Could we do it in a digital chip? So we got the chance to do that. And it's hard to say. Other people may have come up with similar ideas to the ones we had, but we knew it was possible to do. It didn't, wouldn't take a room full of equipment. It, it could be done in a, in a computer chip, or at least it could be in a few years' time. These things take time. So, yeah, uh, you know, the, the inspiration from trying to do that experiment that was uh, sort of initiated by uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, incredible thoughts, did in an indirect way lead lead us to part of the solution to the uh, high-speed Wi-Fi problem. So you you come up with this digital idea and then you can do it out of a chip, but the, the technology's not quite there yet, is that correct? Yes, we could see it could be done. Mm. Uh, Moore's law would say the the speed of chips doubles every year and a half, something like that, the amount of memory doubles in the same sort of time scale. So we could project, yeah, okay, it's only a few years ahead when you could do this. It turned out it was more like about 10 years. <laughs> but uh, we uh, did, in fact, uh, some of our collaborators from Macquarie University, Dave Skellen and Neil Westy, uh, started a company. I joined that company and we actually produced the first chips to actually implement this new uh, Wi-Fi standard. And that was just about the same time as the Sydney Olympics 10 years later. Often any challenge that you set your mind to, and obviously we can't speak to what it's like to be a scientist, but whenever you're trying to solve a problem or dealing with um, a complicated issue at work or a project, there's a large percent of your brain that can't switch off that's thinking about that problem 24-7, you know, during the day when you get home, as you lie in bed at night. Was that the sort of thing that was happening for you at the time? Was it just a a constant flood of ideas and what-ifs and and perpetual spinning of those wheels upstairs? Yeah, I I think my wife would say yes, resoundingly. (laughs) Certainly, you know, certainly sometimes uh, you go to bed grappling with a problem and you wake up in the morning with a sort of uh, a solution. There are other times you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I thought of something last night. I wonder what it was. (laughs) Yeah, I think some of the key problems were not solved by me. They were solved by other members of the team, I have to say. And I look at my notebooks and I think, gee, I was going down some blind uh, alleys there too, wasn't I? But, you know, I think that's part and parcel of any of this. But that it's really it. And hearing you say that is, is really important for people to understand. that You don't just go, I have an idea, I've discovered it, hooray. It's finding the things that don't work that gets you one step closer to the things that do. Was there any point that you kind of lost heart and you thought, I'm never going to get this done? I think at a later stage, we tried to get uh, partners, commercial partners interested in this. And the early 90s turned out to be a, a bad time in the computer world. There were mass layoffs in some some companies. And, uh, you know, we ended up 
for a couple of years there, sort of uh, sitting relatively idle. And then it picked up later as uh, I had left, actually left CSIRO. When you uh, look around now, John, and you see that, like Osh said, it's in three to five billion devices around the world and it's ubiquitous in our daily lives, what is it like to reflect on that, being involved in a technology that virtually everyone on the planet uses on a daily basis? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, obviously some pride. But you know, I look back and we were arguing with various people trying to say this is going to be big. But what we thought was big and what we now see is so, so different. We mainly saw sort of business applications, education applications, but every every little device now has got a, a, a Wi-Fi interface in it. It's just amazing how we've just become so dependent on it. When you think about the way it could have gone, what kind of environment do you think that you had at work as far as were they, look, here's the funding, you guys are clearly onto something, off you go and go and play, or were there people above you wanting reports all the time and, you know, the funding needs to be justified, such and such? We had uh, bosses who had uh, had vision and trust, and I've heard stories how my boss, the chief of the Division of Radio Physics, Bob Freighter, had gone to the uh, board of CSIRO and put forward these plans and the board of CSIRO basically agreed with him this is a good team, it's a real speculator, it's a flyer, but we, we should go for it. And they did, they, they funded us. And they did the same uh, in the legal domain when they uh, went after royalty returns from the various companies using the technology all around the world. And that ended up earning something like 400 million US for CSIRO, at least half of which went into funding uh, young researchers around the country and future, you know, future efforts, not just uh, wireless, or, but you know, across the board. Yeah, I mean, that must be um, one of the best parts about it, I imagine, you know, knowing the legacy isn't, this isn't just this incredible technology, but you know, the money that's come from it has helped fund further scientists, further innovation, further research. That's got to be a great feeling. Uh, yes, it sure is, yeah. yeah. I guess in so many fields you, you look at the young people and think, yeah, well, that's that's where the next steps are coming from. Both James and I have, have little kids. What's your hope for them as far as uh, education and, you know, as far as science and science literacy goes? I personally feel strongly that we we need all aspects of of thinking, uh, the arts, science. Many of the scientists uh, and engineers I've known have been very very interested in the arts. I would encourage anybody to be as broad as they can be and uh, encourage the uh, the interest, the interest in different things. And we have the potential now. It is uh, really much easier to go and find out about something you didn't know anything about than it ever has been in the past. And it's it's really fun learning about new things. It's that was some of what school was about and university was about, learning about new things. You know what makes it easy to learn about new things, John? Wi-Fi. <laughs> 
I can't thank you enough for staying up late to talk to James and I. My final question, what's the name of your Wi-Fi um, network at your house? The, the access point, it's a Telstra access point. And- oh, oh, John, of all people. <laughs> See, we got to sort that shit out. Come on, John. Raspberry Pis, uh, multiple computers, TVs. I must be up to about 30 devices at this stage. We'll try and come up with a great uh, Wi-Fi name so when people are around for dinner at your place and they ask for Wi-Fi, yeah. they'll click on and they'll go, ah, there it is. That's got to be John's. Suggestion's <laughs> gratefully received. <laughs> we'll be in touch. You Absolute legend. It's a complete honour to speak with you, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Did you see that? He has like 30 devices, raspberry pies. He's got raspberry pies at his house, Jimmy. That means he's, he has. he's got a shed. He's got a fucking shed. Man shed. That's like, can't talk to you, honey. I'm in the back. Tinker, 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 tinker. He's very um, cheerful. It was lovely. There's only one part of it. Like, he was a really cheerful man, and it was really nice speaking to him. And I love that I'd like to think that that positivity was a part of what fueled his creative team as they went to discover things. There was only one thing about everything that he said that made me quite sad. He said at the very very inception of network computing, the fastest connections they had between computers was fiber optics. And that was in the 70s and 80s. And here we are, James, you and me, trying to do it video calls we don't have fiber optics you know what would Still. be good if we had like a, a a national fiber optic network where everyone oh had fiber optic to their house it means we could work from anywhere regional australia could have access to super high speed internet people would be able to get medical treatment education healthcare entertainment It'd be all brilliant. from their It'd change home. the media landscape mm. too. It'd be fantastic. That's brilliant. We should pitch Just that. an idea. We should pitch that to someone. Mm. I really like that. Just an idea. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Couldn't <Right>. be too <laughs> hard. Surly Jim. I haven't seen Surly Jim in a while. <laughs> I've pushed Surly Jim down very deep. <laughs> Look, John, as you mentioned, he was not alone. According to Ars Technica, the other inventors of Wi-Fi were not only Dr. John O'Sullivan, it was um, Mr. Diet Ostreet, Terry Percival, Dr. Terry Percival, who you mentioned, uh, Mr. Graham Daniels, and Mr. John Dean. And those five people worked together to create this part of the technology that made Wi-Fi possible. They did it right here in Australia. It says here, by 2012, the royalties, because people then replicated it and they went, that's our patent. The way it works is like, oh, that's our patent. You're using our technology. Can we have some royalties, please? Yes, no problems. Over $430 million they they made for the CSIRO. Do you reckon John saw the cent of that? I reckon John was pretty smart with how he did things, Jimmy. I've got a feeling like if you, if you come up with that, like whichever way you play it, if you came up with Wi-Fi 10 years before it became the standard, you'd probably – Figured a few things out. You probably bought Bitcoin in 1999. <laughs> yeah. He is Satoshi Nakamoto. That's the other thing I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Satoshi Nakamoto. Well, we started with Dolph Lundgren singing Eye of the Tiger and we ended there with Dr. John O'Sullivan, one of the creators 
of Wi-Fi. It's quite a journey. It was probably more convoluted than it needed to be. But look, hey, we talked at the beginning of the show. Who needs linear? How could I not talk to you about Dolph Lundgren going to the same university? How could I not go there? I'm sure we watched Universal Soldier together, like on the road. And the sequel. But uh, I love that. He's great. John's great. He, he really is. It's amazing that so much of the technology we use is just taken for granted. But uh, there's these people beavering away. And, and you know what's different back then? And when you work for the CSRO, you're not some Silicon Valley hedge fund kid, you know. You, you're not trying to start some app to get a venture capitalist back in to make your money and retire to the Bahamas, you know. That, that's so much of what is driving Silicon Valley. It isn't trying to improve people's lives. It's really just how can we make money? Yeah. The apps that we use every day are built by people like this. You know, they were in it because they thought this could help people. This could advance society. There's something pretty awesome about that. I mean, there's almost a nobility in it, you know, doing science for the right reasons, not just trying to cash in on some sort of techno fad. And we had a bachelor who, like, he's essentially, he started working in radio astronomy, all right? So, they spend their time sitting around giant radio dishes listening to space, listening what space is making. And I asked, the day I met Dr. Matt Agnew, who was our bachelor, who was an astrophysicist bachelor, I'm like- what does it do for your perception as a human? What does it do for your perception of like all the things we think are so important down here to, you know, think about the scale? And he just went on this, his eyes just widened and he went, mate, you've got no idea. Once you realize that as far as we can see, as far as we can perceive is 64 billion light years. I think that's the right number, 64 billion light years away. But we know that there's stuff beyond that because things pop in from outside that spectrum because I am so infinitesimally small and everything is so meaningless. Like it just, it must change the way you go through day to day going, I'm nothing. I am, as Carl Sagan would say, I'm a piece of stardust wandering around. I'm an atom contemplating another atom. I'm tiny. You know, it's it's got to change the way you look at the yeah, world. Of course, you don't need to be an astrophysicist for that though. You know, you can do that. That should be your starting point. Every petty, pathetic, insular drama that you have in your life, think that you are, you know, a tiny collection of atoms on a rock floating in the middle of an infinite universe. How can you focus on these tiny problems? How can they have any importance? You're going to die. You'll be dead soon. No one will remember you in a hundred years, you know. You wouldn't have. I'm not saying that. Nothing has value, but the things that we occupy our mind and our hearts and our time with, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't matter so much. So just revel in the awesomeness that it is that you got to be alive. I don't know. That's my take anyway. Are you feeling all right, mate? I don't know. It's hard to know whether it's what's an existential crisis and what's just I'm really tired. You know, that's that's a game show that I pitched. It didn't really take off. <laughs> anyway. Welcome to. You know what I mean? Crisis. I know exactly what you mean, James, and I'm grateful. I'm very grateful I had the time to do this with you tonight. What are we going to talk about next time? In the next few weeks when you're talking to the man who, um, who captured the poo jogger. 
Um, oh, my God. Hopefully, we're going to talk to someone who was on the boat when Sally Robinson laid down her oars. And hopefully, we'll do our very first uh, listener request on Idle Australians. So, uh, hit us up. You got a story, you got a hero, you got an event, you got an invention, you got a flashback, got a bit of nostalgia that uh, you want us to do a deep dive into, then we're here for you. Idleaustralians at gmail.com. You're a legend, Jay's Brotherson. Have a good sleep and uh, I'll talk to you next time. This episode of Idle Australians was brought to you by me and James, who did the talking part. The audio production was by Daryl Misson. The research and production was by Bree Steele. And is there anything else we had to thank, James? No, and I'm in two minds about giving credits. Why? Because, one, I like the people who we work with to receive recognition. On the other hand, I enjoy people thinking that we do it all ourselves and that we pull this shit off single-handedly. And so... You know what? In honour of our guest, this can be a quantum state of credits. It can be at the same time credits where other people help us make this show, and at the same time, in the same instance, in the same moment of time, no one else helps us make it. It's just us two. Shut up. Schrodinger's credits. Bingo. (laughs) Who's going to listen to this show? (laughs) I'm so fucking nerdy. I love it. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.